Hello, and welcome to IRI Growth Insights C-Suite Conversations. I'm your host, John McIndoe, Chief Marketing Officer here at IRI. IRI integrates big data, predictive analytics, and forward-looking insights to help CPG companies, retail, healthcare, and media markets grow their businesses. We also share our thought leadership with the industry at large with the goal of addressing and tackling key challenges within our industry. Our special C-suite conversation series features notable leaders talking about the future of CPG and retail. In this episode, we're joined by Scott Howe, CEO of IRI partner company, LiveRamp. Today's conversation may be an introduction to some viewers and listeners to LiveRamp, a prominent behind the scenes company in the CPG industry committed to building and nurturing the most trusted offline and digital identity resolution technologies. Scott is the CEO of LiveRamp, the leading data connectivity platform for the safe and effective use of data. He also led Axiom, LiveRamp's former parent company from 2011 to 2018. In 2014, Fast Company named Scott one of the world's most creative people. We can actually attest that Scott remains one of the most creative people we certainly know, and is also one of the most committed in his support of data governance, connectivity, and tapping into the usefulness of the insights data can reveal. CPG marketers, among others, may feel they're facing obstacles in connecting with their shoppers in an online world. And as new restrictions on how we collect and use the data are being imposed, our conversation today is even far more relevant than ever before. LiveRamp is actually at the forefront of how marketers talk to consumers. We invited Scott here today in part to talk with us about these changes and what they mean to our businesses. Today, Scott will be speaking with IRI's Nishad Mehta, Chief Product Officer and President of Media here at IRI. With that, looking forward to a wonderful conversation and Nishad, over to you. Thank you, John, and, and welcome, Scott. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I'd love to pick up the baton from John and maybe um, just better understand a fuller picture of you from a personal perspective before we dive into the uh, the professional aspect. Um, we've worked together for a number of years now. You've always been ahead of the curve, certainly a very creative individual, as John mentioned. Um, one thing I did learn about you is you've got a pretty impressive home office situation that's, uh, I think, a lot of our users and, and, and uh, visitors would love to hear about given current environment. Uh, would you love to talk about that a little more? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for uh, thanks for asking me here today. This is a real fun uh, event, a real break from kind of the normal drudgery of, of work from home. Uh, and so, you know, when you ask about my home office setup, uh, you're not asking about the green screen that's behind me, but rather uh, I think you heard uh, about uh, where I was working, where I've been working through most of the pandemic. And more specifically, when I was a younger guy, grew up in Wisconsin, and uh, we had always uh, gone on the big family vacations, the car vacations. And so from the time I was really young, I always like dreamed of having an Airstream. Uh, and so for like 20 years, when I go on like client visits, I'd always look, I was looking for like a mid 1950s Airstream, this one particular year made in California. It looked kind of like a rocket ship. Uh, and so I go visit clients and I check like Craigslist and see like, is there one in a field someplace? And all my clients knew about this. They'd be like, oh yeah, you know, should we go see Airstreams this time? Well, 
when I left Microsoft 10 years ago, I finally found the perfect Airstream uh, and had a little bit of time. I rehabbed it. It's now sitting in my driveway. Uh, it was where I got sent uh, when I was a bad husband or bad father uh, for like the time out. Uh, but in COVID, it's what I made my office uh, and, and it's phenomenal. Uh, uh, it's also uh, in the COVID world, I've been using it a little bit more and getting out and going camping. And, and so that's been really fun as well. That's fantastic. I, the idea of having a lock on my door to prevent my one of my three kids, who frankly, one of them is probably going to walk in on this conversation, sounds extremely appealing right now. <laughs> um, you mentioned Wisconsin, beer or cheese? Uh, it's changed. It used to be beer when I was young. Now it's, it's, it's all cheese all the time. Uh, and you haven't lived until you've had fried Wisconsin cheese curds or fried mozzarella sticks. I mean, that's... That's what Couldn't we're growing up. That's what we grow up in in Wisconsin. And then maybe last question. Um, I understand you're an Eagle Scout. Um, hardest badge you ever earned? Yeah. So not an Eagle Scout. My my boys are. I was a Scoutmaster. One of the great pieces of advice I got uh, when I became a new father was get involved with your kids. And so I've been a basketball coach, a soccer coach, uh, a Scoutmaster for a while. And I will tell you that limits of my scout mastering uh, end with the hiking merit badge because uh, the hiking merit badge, which my kids have not earned, requires that you go on like a week long trek uh, covering like 30, 40 miles. And I was like, I'm good for camping for a couple days. <laughs> Three might be the limit, but there is no way I'm sleeping on the, the ground for, for a week straight. Yeah, hopefully you can you can tail along with the airstream while the rest of them hike. <laughs> well, excellent. I appreciate that. Master. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> excellent. Uh, well, good. I, I think if we start to to get into a little bit more about what you do, maybe let's start. Just uh, you know, we we've had a number of these conversations. Um, they've primarily been in the CPG space with retailers, with CPG companies, and let's face it, many of us know who they are because we buy their products, we shop in their stores. Um, I think you guys are an extremely important part of the ecosystem, but maybe not as well known to the average consumer. Um, so it'd be great to just have you tell us a little bit more about LiveRamp and the role you play in the ecosystem. Yeah, the average consumer doesn't know who we are, but the average packaged goods company certainly does. Uh, LiveRamp is a SaaS platform that makes it safe and easy for companies to use their customer data. And, and just to unpack that a little bit, the hardest challenge in using data um, is every company knows that if they apply data to their decisions, they'll make better decisions. But doing that in practice can be really difficult. Uh, so it's it's hard to like go out and, and get your hands on the data that's useful, both within your organization and outside your organization. So we've built integrations into all of those data sources to make it easy, easier for those companies. It's hard to integrate the data together. Um, and so we provide a translation layer, a Rosetta Stone, if you will, that allows disparate data streams to be combined. Um, it's hard once you figure out what the data is telling you to activate it at the touch points that matter at your cash register, um, uh, online and television. And so we built integrations on the activation side, such that data can be utilized. And then most importantly, 
it's really hard to maintain control of your data and establish the right permissions. And so we've built a whole kind of configurability layer, if you will, that gives our clients a lot of control over who can see their data in what circumstances. So, so that's what we do in a nutshell. And we work with a lot of packaged goods and retail companies. Got it. Which makes a lot of sense because they obviously have a decent amount of data, both first and third party. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, I think, you know, there are probably two things that we hear about constantly as it relates to the work that you do. Um, I think the first is just around how we can reach our customers, how our clients can reach their customers, and certainly how you do that um, sort of before and after the pandemic began and how that's changed. I think the second is just understanding the regulatory environment and some of the challenges that are coming out, not just from governments, but from large tech platforms, browser platforms, et cetera, that make it a little bit harder to connect data sources from multiple places, but obviously in light of trying to protect the data from the, you know, the, uh, protect the usage of the data and make sure that consumers understand how that data is being used. If we start by focusing maybe on the first area, um, I'll, I'll start actually, the last time we saw each other in person was actually at your event, uh, the Ramp Up Conference in I think early March, I believe it was actually March 2nd and 3rd etched in my a life. Lifetime ago, exactly, it? the last few, last, last travel that I did uh, in, in months. Um, and I know I remember talking to you a little bit about the challenges you faced in that experience, putting on that event, knowing some of the uncertainty leading up to it. It obviously was the beginning of the pandemic. And so would be would love to understand, if not just from the event, but just over the last few months, what you've learned in terms of, of uh, sort of handling a situation like the one that we're going through right now. Sure. It's, it's really interesting. It's like a movie that I've seen before and I kind of know the ending, but I, I don't necessarily uh, know all the plot lines. And, and more specifically, you know, the, uh, although the pandemic itself is, is terrible, um, what our clients experience that in, in many respects is as a massive recession. And, and so you and I got together in March and, and you know, uh, it's amazing. March and April represented the biggest swing in unemployment in U.S. history, the biggest decrease in consumer spending in U.S. history. And then, you know, literally a month later, when the first stimulus bill was passed, we saw the biggest increase in household income in U.S. history. It's just been this roller coaster ride. But it parallels these past recessions. And, and you know, Nisha, you and I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'll put, I'll, I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt and make myself a little bit younger, but we've lived through some of the same experiences. Um, and, and namely, you know, the 2001 uh, dot-com recession and then the financial crisis of what, 10, 11 years ago. And in both instances, what we saw um, in the marketing world was a real flight to this concept of addressability. When money is tight, the money that you spend has to be accountable. It has to result in bottom line improvement. Um, and, and so in both of the prior recessions, uh, we saw really interesting trends 
in, in terms of advertising going from above the line brand advertising to very accountable. Um, and so in 2001, on the heels of that, you saw companies like Google emerge with search. And, and then it, uh, 11 years ago, it was really more like Facebook and the rise of programmatic display and behavioral targeting really exploded. We're seeing the same thing right now. Clients are saying, hey, I'm, I'm still going to spend. I'm probably going to cut my linear television. The money I have has to be accountable, has to be measurable. And so they're all, you know, they're all flocking. I don't know who the winners and losers will be this time, but I know one of the winner segments is data because all of our clients, uh, and I'm sure all of your clients at IRI are saying, how can data help me make better decisions and hold that spend accountable? No, I think that's a really good point. And connecting sort of the last two recessions and around to your point, sort of the move to more addressability is certainly a, a big value. Um, one thing that, that I think is very important to our CPG clients um, is that they frankly have an addressable market that effectively is the entire world, right? Anyone that eats something, anyone that consumes paper products, et cetera, um, and I think there's always this challenge between addressability, reaching the right individuals, and sort of more broader kind of traditional brand awareness and equity. Um, we've seen a number of things around sort of messaging, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that was really focused on equity. I think your point is absolutely valid in that as you need money to go further and be more efficient, you focus on addressability. Any advice for how to strike the right balance between the need, to your point, to show short-term results drive actual targeting of the individuals you need to target today, while also making sure that you're not losing sight of the fact that you want to be an ongoing concern years from now? Yeah, I, I think it's three things. I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, the first two are things I know well. The third is something that, you know, I, I, I experience as a consumer along with anyone else. Uh, so the the first piece is this concept of addressability. And so finding the right audience. And, and you know, I, I understand the concept that a lot of packaged goods uh, reach a broad market, but there are power users. And so if I'm advertising, I don't know, Lay's potato chips, Scott Howe is the ideal market for that because I love sour cream and onion potato chips. Um, and so I'm going to really respond to that ad. So if you only have a limited amount of dollars to spend, aim it at your most loyal, most valuable customers. The second piece is it's not just about finding the right customer. It's about serving them a personalized, relevant message. Uh, and, and, and so um, there are packaged goods products that you and I probably love. And then there are packaged goods products that, you know, probably are no longer relevant to us. So as an example, 10 years ago, um, Pampers uh, would have been really valuable for me. Well, my kids are older now mm -hmm. and, and it's not something I think about or want to think about anymore. And, and so serving the right message, you know, particularly if you're a packaged goods company or a retailer, um, you might know the customer, but then serving the right message to them is, is so important. And then the final piece, and this is where I, I feel 
um, that some companies have really got, got it wrong um, is to be authentic. Uh, because how often have we seen, particularly in television, um, connected television, where you see the same ad, the same message, and, and you could just kind of plug and play and, and you know, switch advertisers. They're all saying the same thing. And after a while, we as consumers start to tune that out. And, and so, you know, in times of crisis, it's more important than ever to be really authentic. And I, I feel like uh, companies get the first and second right more often today than they get the third right. Yeah, not lost on me that in an, in an election year as well, authenticity matters. And uh, we're, we're all trying to grapple with, uh, with you know, how, how, to, how to make that message uh, stick in public. Um, I think your point is a very good one, though, on, on addressability and, and relevance. Um, certainly appreciate those things um, and certainly appreciate how those have changed. Frankly, what I'm hearing from you is not necessarily directly related to the pandemic, but potentially related to the sort of recession or the, the need to make dollars go further. What do you anticipate going forward, um, either from a macroeconomic standpoint or more specifically, um, how we should be thinking about targeting strategies, how we should be thinking about relevance as we look out the next six, nine, 12 months? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And what I would point to is where is the greatest innovation come from uh, in business history? It has almost always arisen from industries uh, that are super competitive or startups that are cash constrained and need to make the pivot. Hardship inspires innovation. Uh, and you know, oftentimes recession uh, as a result is seeds a zillion innovations and, and new entrepreneurial companies. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. Uh, I'm seeing that already in the retail space. And, and more specifically, what we're seeing is um, companies that have long realized that they were collecting really interesting data on their consumers, permission, uh, permission data on their consumers, uh, are, are saying, well, that's my most valuable data. But if that's the case, um, should someone else's, uh, this other company over here that isn't a competitor, aren't they also collecting really interesting information? And what if all of a sudden we started to collaborate a little bit? The connected car manufacturer who suddenly is connecting with destinations you could drive the car to to inform your navigation system on the dashboard. The retailer who is collaborating with their packaged goods partners in new and interesting ways, not just about, you know, what is the next FSI to drop on a Sunday, uh, but instead about, hey, you're spending co-op advertising dollars on connected television. What if I uh, allowed you some insight into my store scanner information such that you made better use with that, uh, that co-op television, drove better store sales for me. We both win because you make better uh, use of your marketing budget. I sell more stuff in stores. And oh, by the way, our customers win because they get better offers, uh, more relevant information 
when they're planning their store visits. So we're starting to see that kind of innovation. Um, it's still in its early stages, but I think over the next decade, we're going to see this take flight. It's really interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, we, we, we're, I'm starting to hear a lot about just the, sort of the network effect of data. The idea being that I can sit on some data, it's valuable to me. The moment I connect it to three other places, it's not just three times as valuable, it's sort of exponentially valuable and all four data sets become exponentially valuable. You guys are doing a number of things in the area of enabling that the sort of the data collaboration space. Wasn't sure if there was anything else you wanted to share about some of the efforts that LiveRamp is doing to, to help companies in terms of their collaboration with others around data. Yeah, Nisha, you're, you're exactly right. And I've, I get this question a lot from clients around what's the most valuable data I could have? And, and the answer, the analysis always looks the same. That if you have one piece of data, that's better than the absence of data. If you have five pieces of data, that's better than a single piece of data. But uh, the best results uh, are always obtained when you have access to all of the relevant data. Uh, now you need to temper that with the operational reality of uh, what is the most relevant data and you know, eventually hit an asymptote and you start to flatten out on your ROI curve. However, um, it's really important that marketers think um, really, really inside out. Maybe actually, maybe a better way to put that is they have been thinking inside out, meaning what do we have when they should be thinking outside in. Mm. Uh, and, and more specifically, the very best marketers and very best companies are doing something that is so simple, so intuitive, but is so powerful. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the big theme park operators in the world. Um, they built a mini theme park inside uh, one of their studios it was four years ago. And instead of, you know, the, the, the roller coaster, they had like a children's carousel. Instead of the magnificent front gate and gardens, uh, they just had a single turnstile. Uh, but they recreated kind of the process. And then they went through and at every stage in that process, they said, what is the experience like at the theme park today? If we had data at this point of interaction with the customer, how would we change that process? And then armed with how we would like to change the process, then it, it kicks to, well, what, where do we go find that data and how do we activate it? I.e., it's not about, I have a whole bunch of data, what does it mean? It's about, what am I trying to accomplish? And so what data do I want to go collect? Who can I partner with? Where can I find it within my organization? And then how do I activate it in a way that's meaningful to the customer? Uh, and, and that sounds so obvious, but most companies do the exact opposite and say, oh, we have all this data. We're going to hire scientists and, and crunch through it. And we'll figure out what it means. As opposed to saying, what is it we're trying to do every day and how does data inform us and allow us to do it better? It's a really good insight. Um, I mean, it, it's applying the models that we apply to so many other decisions in business that frankly aren't always applied to data where we just look at it as hey, if I can get it, I should get it. 
which frankly probably does lead to some of the privacy concerns in that people start to go after data that frankly they may not really gain much value from and and could be risky in collecting, which we'll come to in a moment. One one other question I did want to ask is just as we think about uh, industries, um, you mentioned retail earlier, you guys have the benefit of working across frankly every industry. Are there some industries that you think are doing this better on the area of of collaboration? Um, Are there others where you think that there's a lot more opportunity that they could be, you know, taking advantage of. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I will go back to retail. Uh, travel, I think, is another great example. It's it's the industries that are most competitive, um, and and you know, this really dates back to Nisha. If you remember, um, in the '90s, uh, what did we all start to get? Well, we all started to get an Amex card with loyalty points and started to track our frequent flyer miles. And that was the start of a decade of collaboration. And that collaboration in the 90s was around a currency that mattered to to us as consumers, and it was travel. You know, collect points, exchange from travel, and then eventually they became shopping miles that we could exchange for goods. And that forced us to link together all these different travel partners. Uh, and, and, you know, very quickly, there became the One World Consortium and the Star Alliance. We're seeing the same thing happen again. It is the same movie script. It will have the same ending. But instead of talking about loyalty points, we're talking about data. Uh, and how do you use data to create a better customer experience? And so in really competitive industries uh, where every single uh, little advantage can be uh, the difference between a successful year and an unsuccessful year, they've been, uh, they've been more eager to innovate. And so uh, we're seeing it in retail. Uh, Target's doing some amazing stuff uh, with their uh, packaged goods manufacturers um, to collaborate around data. We've worked with Carrefour in France for several years now, um, and they're doing some unbelievable stuff. And, and, you know, importantly, it's not about them just driving better P&L outcomes. Um, They both start with, how is this going to improve the customer experience? Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. So maybe if we if we switch gears um, and focus on the sort of the other main topic um, that I'd wanted to spend some time on because it's sort of hot uh, for for every major marketer in the in the in the world today, or at least certainly in the U.S., um, is around how we look to the future of identity. Um, I think you're well aware, and many of our uh, listeners are also quite aware of the fact that there's a number of things around the third-party cookie, around browsers and their ability to understand behavior across the internet, around government regulation in you know, California, in Europe, and obviously what will become eventually sort of everywhere. Um, Apple rolled out uh, an announcement around the IDFA, which now won't go into effect until hopefully the early part of 2021. Um, I guess, how are you guys thinking about all of this and what it means for our industry? Well, first off, I would tell you that. I am so excited about where this is going and not just excited as a business person uh, who thinks about this at work all the time, but quite frankly, more excited about what this means for me as a consumer and what this means for my kids um, as they grow up and and the amount of power and visibility that they'll have. Uh, And more specifically, 
if indulge me for a second, um, I think I think we've been on a journey around that. And it started, if you think back to like, you know, pre-1970 or something like that, uh, I would say all of business was dumb. It was the equivalent, uh, marketing was the equivalent of standing at the street corner with the mattress sign, you know, stop here, buy now. And it was like screaming at consumers, look at me, pay attention to me, care about me, come in my store and buy. Over the last couple of decades, we've shifted from the era of dumb business to smart business. And businesses are so much more sophisticated. They're collecting permission-based CRM data. They're mining that for insights. They're reaching back out to their most loyal customers with targeted offers. Um, they're upselling them. They're increasing the lifetime value of their customers. And that's exciting. But what is more exciting is where we're going. And, and that is transitioning from the era of what I would say is smart business today to the smart empowered consumer of tomorrow. And so think about that. Instead of the business knowing about you and constantly uh, uh, giving you the next great upsell offer, um, instead you also are empowered to know about the brands you love and, and tell them things. Uh, a few years ago, when I was the CEO of Axiom, we launched this, this website called About the Data. And it was a place where consumers could go and see all the data that data brokers had collected on them. And it kind of demystified the process. I mean, a lot less scary. And um, for those that didn't like it, they could opt out. Uh, but what was interesting is the most popular feedback that we got from visitors to the site, um, we had areas, areas where they could um, give us their, their feedback, written feedback. Um, they said, where can I tell you more about me such that I can get better offers and have better relationships with the companies I love, Apple and Sony and Best Buy and uh, Nike. We're moving to this world where consumers, they control their data. Uh, they will control their permissions. And great companies will understand that. And they'll have a conversation with consumers and say, hey, if you give me permission, I'll give you access to free songs. I'll give you access to this content behind the firewall. I'll give you 10% off next time you come in the store. But it becomes an explicit value exchange. And mm -hmm. as soon as you make it explicit, then all of a sudden companies start to innovate on their value propositions and consumers start to get smarter about what companies they want to work with and why. It shouldn't be opaque. It shouldn't be behind the curtain. Apple and Google should not be the disintermediary, the intermediary between every consumer and every business on the planet. As a consumer, I want to talk directly to the brands I love. And, and that's where we're moving in the world. I think it is such a great thing. I, I think it's a great way of looking at it. I think in our industry, there's oftentimes a, because it's a change from the status quo, we need to be worried about it. When I think you're exactly right. We, this, this actually probably brings more stability 
to our industry because we knew the consumer was going to get here. We just didn't exactly know. To your point, you know the ending of the movie. We may not know all the plot lines to get there. Um, I, I'm always, you know, we, we talk a lot to our CPG clients about the importance of the loyalty card, because if there was probably ever a mechanism for the collection of data that is truly transparent and a true value exchange for the consumer, it is that. If I choose to buy something that I'm embarrassed to share the data on, I just choose not to get my discount, not to show my loyalty card. And that transaction is simply just disappears. It's, it remains anonymous. Um, and I think you're right. It is something I am excited about as well as a future where uh, I can justify to my mother why I do what I do without having to defend or feel like I'm on the defensive when I'm explaining to her why her data is being used in a certain way uh, without her, her knowing about it or without her benefit. Um, what do you think the end game looks like? Uh, you know, whether it's three years out or 10 years out, what do, what do you think um, sort of what, what should be the North Star that a marketer looks towards in terms of how privacy and how consumer data ends up getting shared in the future? Well, I think it starts with one simple thing, which is uh, the starting point needs to be consumers need control and visibility around their data. Uh, and I think when that is the North Star, then companies start to behave differently and in a really noble way that benefits consumers. We're seeing this uh, with content publishers already. Uh, so for a long time, uh, historically, uh, the big content digital publishers have relied on this concept. This, I'm going to go a little bit industry jargon here, this concept called a third-party cookie um, to deliver personalized ads to consumers. Uh, well, more recently, that third-party cookie has come under attack, um, both from a regula regula regulation perspective and uh, uh, even before that, Google, for instance, announced they're just going to discontinue um, that technology. As a result, these big publishers have been forced, instead of relying on someone else to, to get permission, um, they have to, when a, when a consumer visits their website, say, hey, we're going to give you access to content, but you're going to see advertising. Is that okay? Yes or no. Um, Someone, someone clicks yes, and they can deliver more personalized content. Um, and, and what's really interesting is there are entire categories. Let's say weather, weather information. There is nothing more commoditized than weather. Um, you can get it anywhere. Uh, there are multiple sources. Why do you need you know, a specialized weather company why would you ever give them uh, your email address and authenticate with them and give them permission? Well, here's why. Because if all of a sudden a weather company starts to innovate and instead of just giving you the daily forecast, pushes it to you at 6 a.m. when you wake up every morning, gives you the allergy forecast. I live on the West Coast. You know, I want to see the air pollution index because we've had all these forest fires every day. And now all of a sudden, what is, has been an incredible commodity becomes something incredibly useful for me for which I am absolutely going to give them permission to get that valuable personalized content that was designed for me. And, and so that would that innovation ever have happened if those companies were taking a consumer first approach? I don't think it would have. 
Uh, so the, the end game, uh, when we get to the end, is, is like businesses are going to have much better relationship with, with their consumers. And consumers are going to be able to extract far more value from far greater utility from the businesses with whom they choose to align. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things I am um, certainly interested in from a professional standpoint is, and I guess personal, but um, you know, three months from now, six months from now, uh, understanding how many people have actually opted into their state's COVID contact tracing apps. So I think it's going to be a really good signal of whether consumers are truly appreciating the value that something, you know, data collection provides uh, in excess of the risk of actually providing that data in the sense that this is actually fairly personal data in terms of location data that I'm allowing the app to track. It'll be interesting to see how many people have opted in. Certainly in my own house, I've opted in. My wife has refused to. And so we'll see how the the world moves forward. Um, Well, I mean, COVID's one thing, um, and that might be a little bit more personal, um, but you know, if you if you look at some of the big publishers, the data is now starting to emerge, um, and you know there are quite a few publishers that have well over a ninety percent consent rate. Wow! Um, and and the, the reason being is if you want to use their services and extract the real value of the offering, well, I mean that's a trade you'll make all day long. Uh, and so I'm, I'm super optimistic. Uh, you know, the net net is it's going to squeeze the bad players out of the industry. And what's going to remain are companies that are doing right by their customers. Yeah, completely agree. And, and who, who wouldn't want to work in that type of an industry? Um, I guess as part of the conversation you mentioned around publishers wanting to capture more and more of their own sort of first party data, not rely on a third party cookie. I think that trend is not just specific to publishers. I think it's specific or it's it's general to really everyone that's been more focused now on how to acquire more first party data. Yeah. Um, in the CPG world, it's even more heightened in the sense that few CPGs actually sell direct to consumer. And so their purchase behavior is oftentimes always third party. Um, I'd be interested in in your thoughts on sort of how you're helping companies bring more data in-house, whether it's their own first-party data and sort of organizing it, as you alluded to at the top of the conversation, or for that matter, giving them access to third-party data as though it were their own first-party data. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I, I would go back to what I said earlier, which is the right place to start is what information, if you knew it, would cause you to deliver a better outcome to your consumer. Uh, And and so that's where we'll always start. And and then once you have that kind of wish list, it's a matter of saying, where does that information live? And I would say the vast majority of the time, it already lives within a company. And so, I mean, let's take an example of uh, like a Walt Disney, for instance. I mean, Disney has all these different businesses, each of which is comprised of multiple silos. And in each one of those silos, at each one of those businesses, they're collecting data. But they probably, if they're like most companies in the world, haven't been real sophisticated about bringing it all together. And, and you know, I, I heard someone at Disney talk about this years ago where they said, you know, the problem at Disney is uh, uh, someone always owns the moment, but no one owns the customer. 
meaning the end-to-end journey of connecting all those moments together. Well, it all sits there. They just got to connect it internally. Now, uh, oftentimes that, that information isn't available internally. So then you take the wish list and say, okay, where can we, where can we find this kind of information? Um, what we've done is, uh, because we work with so many clients, it's really easy for us to kind of aggregate their wish list and then say, okay, if people want uh, really good uh, uh, consumer packaged goods information, for instance, I mean, everybody wants IRI data. They just do. Uh, and, and so well, what do we do? Well, we reach out to you and say, hey, how do we make this easier to get in their hands? Can we do a turnkey integration with you um, so, so they can ingest it? without necessarily all the operational complexity of the past. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, I have a pretty simple view. Like uh, if you listen to your customers uh, uh, and they, they'll tell you what to do and then we, we just do it. Uh, and, and so they're telling us like, this is the data that matters to us and here's why. And so we're trying to go make those connections and bring that data to them safely. Great. No, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Listen, I mean, we, you know, we've talked about a lot of things here. Um, maybe the, the right thing to do is just one last question about the future and hopefully a more optimistic one than the, than the 2020 year that we've had so far. Um, I, you know, I think you know, we've seen certainly movements towards uh, e-commerce and more direct-to-consumer. We've seen a number of shifts in terms of, as you've indicated, addressability, uh, in terms of just needing to be more efficient in terms of marketing spend. Um, if you put all of that together, what do you think are some of the tools, the technologies, the processes, the changes that marketers uh, will, will find critical going forward? Um, and, and maybe what does success look like in, in 2021 for these folks? Yeah, uh, I, I think if, if uh, for most companies, uh, the answer is pretty simple. And, and uh the one word I would use is uh, we are entering the age of collaboration. And we've talked about collaboration around data, uh, but it's also collaboration in technology. It's collaboration in marketing. Um, There's just so much value that can be unlocked as soon as you realize I don't have to do it all myself. I don't need to be the world's best at data collection, at uh, building a product, at interpreting uh, my customers' wishes, at uh, deploying my own cloud, I mean, whatever it is. And, And so, you know, customers need to say, all right, how do I find the right partners? But then also, how do I future proof it? Uh, meaning how do I find things that are persistent? Um, and in the data world, we talk about persistency all the time, that it will be enduring and I don't need to redesign it for this experience versus this experience uh, over here. So the concept of persistency, the concept of interoperability. And so from a marketing perspective, making sure that your partners uh, are working through APIs. You have uh, flexibility, uh, meaning that if you change your mind in six months and want to swap out 
um, this decision for another one over here, you can do that and, and uh, thus future-proof. What I would say is that in designing this future, companies should be willing to outsource or partner for almost everything except control. That control is the one piece that they need to maintain. And so it's so important that they build configurability into their systems, into their architecture, into their processes, such that they can change their mind, they can make decisions, and they're never trapped uh, and at the mercy of kind of a monolithic partner. But, you know, as we move to that, uh, boy, the future is glorious. I mean, it's, it's a simple, I, I was having this conversation with my kids and I'm gonna go way afield here. Um, but the, the question was, one of my kids was asked for, for uh, their college essays. Uh, what moment in time could you go back? Would you go back and, and want to be part of? And um, uh, my daughter talked about she would love to be there for the Apollo 11 moon launch mm-hmm. because it was a time of such incredible optimism in the world. And it was, it was no single person who achieved that, but rather it was an army of people working together. And her takeaway, and what I would would leave everyone with, it, it, not just in business, but in America, is that when you work together, anything is possible. And that should give us all such amazing optimism. Because amazing people, when they come together, achieve amazing things. That's a, I mean, a fantastic line. I think it's a, it's a line that we all need uh, right now and to recognize that what we're going through right now and working together to try to just all adapt and, you know, figure out what the new normal is, is all leading to a better place. And to your point, we're all learning how to lean on each other a little bit more. I certainly know I am. Um, so I think we'll leave it there. Scott, I, I can't tell you enough how much we appreciate your time. These are times where everybody is even busier than they normally are. And so to get some of your time and for all of our listeners to have an opportunity to hear some of your insights, just we really, really appreciate it. So thank you, John, I'll turn well, it back you, to you. I, I miss you and I can't wait uh, till uh, all this passes and we can once again see each other in person. Thanks so much, Scott and Nishat. What a fantastic conversation. I just loved how you guys intermix kind of more holistic views about what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective and um, mix that and intermingle that with, you know, tactical recommendations about what's happening today, given the COVID crisis um, and how we need to be thinking very differently. A couple of the things that really, really stood out to me. You talked, Scott, about the increasing need for the use of data in a secure and safe way, given the complexity of the changing world and the need to really connect consumers in meaningful and personalized ways. You talked a lot about addressability and accountability and that those two elements really increasing in importance given, given recessionary times, certainly COVID and budget restrictions. I thought that your perspective around core to this being the data and the data really being able to prove the return on advertising spend, really ultimately being the winner at the end of the day, despite all of this complexity and turmoil. You shared three perspectives around what what it takes to be successful. You talked about certainly addressability 
and finding the right audience. You also talked about personalization um, and relevance and ensuring that the right message gets to the right person at the right time. You also talked about authenticity and certainly given the complexity of what's happening within the COVID world and how people in times of crisis really gravitate towards um, brands and companies and services that are truly authentic. Scott and Nishat, you also talked about predictions, six, nine, 12 months from now, um, you know, where things are going from an innovation perspective. You know, Scott, you made the comment around how hardship inspires innovation. You talked about the power of collaboration, pushing the thinking to bring non-traditional players together. You talked about winning customers and leveraging that network of data and partners to really think outside in and how you really believe that that is going to be essential to companies' successes moving forward. I thought your examples around retail and many of the other industries that you mentioned about pushing boundaries of data, innovation, and collaboration to create new experiences was really insightful. And then obviously we turned our conversation to what's happening in terms of identity and the changes that are happening around browsers, cookies, and increased regulations. I thought that your perspective around really the promise of these, what may be viewed as perhaps some uncomfortable or uh, perhaps concerning increased regulations that are really ultimately gonna lead to creating new standards and better experiences for both marketers as well as consumers and uh, a world and a future that's really truly moving towards consumer first was really inspiring. And finally, at the end, we talked about the age of collaboration across data, marketing, and technology. And Scott, I thought your perspective was spot on. You said not just in business, but in America, when we work together, anything is possible. Amazing people can come together and when they do, they can achieve amazing things. Thank you to our listeners and viewers. This recorded conversation will be available at our website, www.iriworldwide.com. We hope you'll take the opportunity to review our other COVID-19 thought leadership, including valuable reports, and of course, our dashboard of economic indicators. Thanks so much for joining us and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.